This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast. I am one of your hosts, Marcus in the Darkest, and with me is my buddy, Ray Coob. And uh, this week, it is our 13th episode. Lucky, lucky 13. 13. Lucky okay, 13. you say lucky, I lucky. say unlucky. How ironic that episode 13 is uh, a further uh, exploration of a previous family tree. We covered the Yardbirds family tree. And this week, descended from the Yardbirds, of course, Led Zeppelin. We're going to hit you with the hammer of the gods today. That's it. We're dropping the lead on you. And, you know, uh, we talked a lot about the Yardbirds uh, in the episode of the family tree, the Yardbirds. We can kind of cut to the chase a little bit. At the end, after Beck had left, it was Jimmy Page with the Yardbirds. It just didn't didn't fly. We've talked in the uh, Yardbirds family episode about how uh, Keith Ralph was looking to do something different and uh, ended up starting the band Renaissance. And that left the Yardbirds really with Chris Dreja and Jimmy Page. And there were dates. There were dates that had to be fulfilled for the Yardbirds that had been booked. It's one of those situations where you've already got the deposit and you don't want to give the money back, I think. Yeah. So they for, have to form a, a new Yardbirds to fulfill the contract. They talked to Terry Reed, who was pretty well known in the scene back then, and he turned it down, but he recommended this kid, Robert Plant, from Birmingham. And as we know, with Plant comes Bonham. Yep. Those two were almost inseparable back in those days. So that was the start of Led Zeppelin as the New Yardbirds. And they did the Scandinavian tour, and I think there were a couple UK shows that were billed as the last Yardbird shows ever. Because Chris Dreja claimed that he would retain the name of the rights to the Yardbirds. Um, he kind of forced them to make a change that Jimmy Page and the band's manager, Peter Grant, had already been discussing, and that was giving the band a new name. 
Which they had to do at that point. They had to. It was totally a different lineup. You had to. It was going to be a different sound. They and it was a different sound. I maybe maybe when they were in Scandinavia, uh, they found, hey, well, this is our sound, and it's definitely different from the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in there, uh, Keith Moon made the now famous comment when it was described to him what they were going to do. Uh, the saying here in the States is it'll go over like a lead balloon which means it's not going to go very far, yeah. right? And he said, that should go over like a Led Zeppelin, and that's the legend on how they got their name. And yeah. so eventually Paige and Grant decided we're going to change the name, and what the fuck? Keith said it, so Mooney must know something. Let's go with Led Zeppelin. That's just crazy, the things like that. Like, those are Spinal Tap moments in real life. You know, a lot of Spinal Tap is based in truth. I know, that's... <laughs> that much has got to be clear by now if you've seen the movie more than twice. Yep. But, um... Arnie Fufkin. Kick me in the ass. No, kick me right in the ass. Yep. Um, so, that's kind of like what what they all came out of. And once they knew they were going to call themselves Led Zeppelin, they had to get to the studio. Led Zeppelin was a touring beast. The Born of the Yardbirds, they were a touring beast. They got in the studio... And Paige, having, um, I would see being the maestro of this whole thing, uh, took the production reins and really put his stamp on it. You don't have to go through all the songs on Led Zeppelin 1 to realize that these were almost all classics. But as we were discussing earlier, it wasn't an instant classic acceptance scenario, was it? No, they were not. They were actually panned quite a bit by critics. Lisa Robinson said that other journalists were calling them a cheesy heavy metal band. One critic had written that Robert Plant only sings notes that dogs can hear. I mean, these were some harsh things. Harsh. First things first. Yeah. Let's just let's let's redirect that first comment. How could they be cheesy heavy metal when heavy metal was just being invented? Okay. Rolling Stone had some very unkind things to say and uh, would continue to not be fans of Led Zeppelin for many years. Uh, John Mendelssohn wrote of Led Zeppelin 1, The popular formula in England in this, the aftermath era of such successful British bluesmen as Cream and John Mayall, by the way, Cream wasn't a bluesman, it was Eric Clapton, seems to be, add an excellent guitarist who, since leaving the Yardboards and or Mayall, has become a minor musical deity, a competent rhythm section, and pretty soul belter who can do a good spade imitation. What the fuck is that all about? No racism there. Rolling Stone magazine. The latest of the British blues group, so conceived, offers little that its twin, the Jeff Beck group, didn't say well or better three months ago, and the excesses of the Beck group's truth album, most notably its self-indulgence and restrictedness, are fully evidence on Led Zeppelin's debut album. I would say that that would uh, characterize the tone of most critics, a lot of critics, not all. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm betting if Lester Bangs was writing like in his notebook at school, he was writing Led Zeppelin rules. But anyway, yeah, but you know, you know who Led Zeppelin, you know who Lester Bangs panned the crap out of their debut record? Who? Black Sabbath. Hmm. I he actually panned it, but um, well, anyway, but Rolling Stone never yeah. really liked Led Zeppelin. But here's they never the thing. have. Here's the thing: the fans loved Led Zeppelin. Oh, they yeah. bought the record. They went to the shows. Uh, I know people who saw them on their first U.S. tour uh, before the record was out. The record was made. They came over. They played. Hardly anybody knew who they were. They would open. They would play at small places. Were they good live back then? The tapes I've heard sound pretty good. 
I don't know for sure because I wasn't there, but I know some people we could ask sometime. We should. Maybe have them on the show. Absolutely. Okay. So they go out and they're touring and they're playing these songs and they're playing still some of the stuff from the Yardbirds repertoire, but they're really defining themselves. And of course, uh, Paige starts doing the whole bow thing on Dazed and Confused and you start to create, they're starting to create their own flair. Along the way in the touring, some infamous incidents. Um, most notably, um, they were known for trashing hotel rooms and all the rock star things. They kind of, kind of started that, I think. They're one of the people who started it. Uh, but there also is the, uh, mud shark incident in Seattle. Or a red snapper, depending on who you talk depending to. There's about five or six to. different stories. And, and who was the, uh, plier of said fish is also up to debate. Uh, there's a lot of different things that it wasn't even a band member that it was Richard Cole. I don't know. I wasn't yes. there. But all this debauchery was going on. Mm-hmm. And Plant later basically said that, hey, me and John were 19-year-old kids. They were We were kids, you know, out having a, you know, a crazy time. And oh, yeah. so nobody was really putting any restrictions on them because they were out there on the road. Mm-hmm. And they had different girlfriends in every port. Oh, yeah. And there was a wild scene after every show. They never took their wives with them to the United when States. When they had them, no, they did not. The decadence of Led Zeppelin in the U.S. was legendary. They actually viewed the United States as a candy store. Yeah, That's well, the way Led Zeppelin came over here with that attitude. And they he was very competitive with the Rolling Stones, too. He was like... He, he No, Robert Plant. Okay. Like, he always wanted to be better than Mick. And, like, he always uh-huh. felt competitive with Mick because of how they took their sound right. and evolved it into that dirty, beautiful, perfect sound that became what we Stones. know is who the Rolling yeah. Stones really are. Well, Zeppelin was on a path to doing just that. And yeah. uh, when they were on the road, uh, when they when they had kind of ended the cycle of the first album, um, they had started to gain fans through FM radio. They had uh, a large legion of record buyers who were supporting them, and the crowd started to get pretty big too. Mm-hmm. And um, seventy three, they were doing arenas. Well, yeah, and selling but before, them out. But before you get there, they're touring. Doing while they're touring, in each city. Then they had a song they they thought was ready. They would go into a local studio and lay down tracks. So parts, if you look at the the locations for the, where the songs were recorded for Led Zeppelin too, it's all over the place. Oh, yeah. Including uh, Juggies in a studio in New York. There's all kinds of different credits for that kind of stuff. So they're yeah. doing that, and they're carting the masters with them. Those, th- those tapes weighed. So if you had two or three masters for each song, you know, different takes and things, you had all kinds of tape traveling oh, yeah. with you. And so they finish Led Zeppelin two, and they they go on tour, and it's just exhausting. They have been touring since the minute they became a band. Yeah. They've made two records in like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Did you know that um, Peter Grant had signed them to Atlantic for like two hundred thousand bucks without any execs ever hearing them play live? I like think... he did some crazy stuff yeah. that was unheard of. Oh, and legendary. As a manager, they changed rock and roll. They made it the big arena business that we started seeing in a lot of ways. Remember in episode two when we were talking about the Beatles changing everything from the way songs were selected? Mm -hmm. In that atmosphere, Led Zeppelin took it to a whole nother level. Oh, yeah. Um, A heavier level. Everything was under their own control, record company guys. From the beginning, like you just Mm -hmm. said, they signed for whatever they signed for, Mm -hmm. sight unseen, because they knew it was going to be good. Yep. Um, 
And, yeah, but some of the credit there, give a lot of credit to Ahmed's team because yeah. those guys in Atlantic knew what they were doing. What they were doing. Yeah, they really were good at talent scouts and, and doing the formula. And by this point, at the end of the release of Led Zeppelin two, having been on the road, they just stayed on the road back and forth. They would just go back and forth and the tours in the United States got bigger and crazier. And then they went from, they started playing the arena, sure. But then they set an all time record. I think it was in Atlanta. Uh, seventy two, seventy three. No one, no one had ever had a crowd that big at a rock concert in America at that point, and it wasn't like a hundred thousand people like we'd see later at JFK and stuff. Yeah. But then they're exhausted. Yeah. Now I don't know about you when you when you want to when you need to recharge. I know you listen to Nina Simone. Yeah. Okay, but what do you do if you're in a band that's been all over the world? What do you do? I don't even know how they came up with this. What'd they do? There's a little cottage in Wales. A little place called Bronyar. Ah, the Bronyar stone. No running water. It may have had water. Might have even had, but I think they had outdoor plumbing, no plumbing, uh, no electricity. And uh, there's people who live there now who get visitors all the time, and they say it's okay to come up and visit, but don't just kind of like skulk around. It freaks mm-hmm. them out. But so they went there, and they just kind of hung out, and they did camp writing by the campfire. And here's an intersection with uh, a friend of theirs. One of the guys, if you go look at the old Grey Whistle Test videos um, of this time, there's a, a video of, it's film, I guess, of Paige uh, and um, Roy Harper, as in hats off to Roy Harper. Oh, my God. Um, walking through a like a, a, a field, and Paige is just playing strumming, and him and, and Harper are just kind of hanging out. So he was there with them for some of the time at Bronyar. So I don't know about that much. And then they come out with Led Zeppelin three. Their sound changed quite a bit between two and three. Well, the evolution was very interesting. Look at the two sides of Led Zeppelin three. One side is considered the soft side. And that's where you get songs like That's the Way and mm-hmm. some of the softer stuff. And then the other side's like Since I've Been Loving You and mm-hmm. The Rock and stuff, Out on the Tiles. Mm-hmm. Immigrant. So it was really like they were exploring. Um, there was, you know, you, you look at the first two records, and it was solidly ballsy blues rock. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of experimenting. No. And this brought in some textures, which laid into uh, or played into their their heritage as uh, British musicians and uh, a little bit of Wales thrown in there, the Welsh uh, folk element, and you get Led Zeppelin III. There was a, there was critical backlash on that one, too, because they didn't stay true to what their their mission seems to be, kind of critique of of them. And um, if you remember, the, um, uh, the original Led Zeppelin III album had the symbols on the outside and it had the wheel... And, uh, and the wheel would spin so that the cover would actually change. Yeah. It was one of the first covers that ever said, you know, hey, we can, it can be a different cover if you just spin the wheel, right? Yep. And I think they took shit for that because they, people said it was, it was, uh, you know, like a gimmicky. Excessive and or gimmicky, gimmicky, yes. Yeah. So what do they do in response to being called gimmicky and they're trying too hard? They come back with what's Arguably their greatest album, Led Zeppelin IV. Yeah. No name of the band on the cover. Nothing, so, no so. title, no nut, just the pictures, right? Nothing. Grant was adamant that he didn't even want a sticker that said this is Led Zeppelin's fourth record. They wanted the word to get out that it was coming. This is what it is. You would know what it was. You'd see the ads, whatever the, the motivator was, and you would go get it. But... 
the record company was really nervous. You know, this is a band that wouldn't let them put out singles. Yeah. You know, they, they, they were... They, yeah, the band didn't release singles. No. And they didn't play free shows or any of that. No, 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 nobody, there wasn't as much of that going yeah. on, um, like, they didn't free stop fest. by radio stations and do like TV performances either. No, you don't see a lot or hear a lot yeah, of that. Yeah, there stuff. really wasn't any of that. It was part of the mystique, I think, that they built up, and a lot of it was around mysticism and Crowley and, mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. So there they are. They're four records in. It's, what's it, like four records in like, 30, not even three years, yeah. you know, is like less than three years. And, uh, they've had this whirlwind around them. Uh, they created this, uh, amazing, I, it's the only one way I could f- picture it is say amazing atmosphere of what will they do next? And, um, the answer after four records was houses of the holy. Now you s- a lot of people claim that Houses of the Holy or Physical Graffiti are the uh, quintessential Led Zeppelin records, but you said probably their greatest record for... Just because ounce for ounce, pound for pound... It's, it's a monster. It's packed with muscle and energy and uh, the the other the flip side on things it's like going to California. Too. Yeah. It's one of the sexiest rock and roll albums ever recorded. True. Highly recommended for sexual activity. Very much. I mean, think about the uh love that Damone gave it in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That alone tells you the importance of Amen. side one Led Zeppelin for Oh yeah. But Houses of the Holy was different. It started to have some different textures. But not like acoustic versus electric. It, it, you had the, the crunge, which is their uh, half tribute to James Brown. You had some songs that were conceived differently. Uh, the Rain Song and No Quarter. Uh, oh. so, and it wasn't just soft songs. It would start like a No Quarter. Starts soft and builds. Rain Song. The arrangements uh, are brilliant on that album. And a lot of that, you hear a lot of that, is John Paul Jones handed things, you know? And uh, too. Well, you know, his drumming, is, I've always said that it's the, one of the most distinguishing qualities of Led Zeppelin. Because you listen to all those tracks on Led Zeppelin 4 recorded in that stairwell at Headley Grange. Mm-hmm. It's otherworldly. Mm-hmm. They take more shit for it now. Than they did then, but the cover of Houses of the Holy stirred up some issues. Um, oh, yeah. Not because the religious or censorship people were thinking of the exploitation of children. It's just that it was so different. It was certainly different from the covers they'd put out. Today, you would just take a few of those kids, pose them on rocks, do them in a couple different other positions, capture them all, and spread them out over the hill. Well, they actually had to have all those children out there on the hill, and I think they did it in sections, but they still need a lot of them, and they all needed them to be white makeup, and wow. it was cold, and there was a day when they were working when it was rainy, and the makeup began to run, so they really were stretched to make the concept work, but I think that was hypnosis. They always managed to pull it all together in the, and then clean it up in the post, you know? The magic. 
But the music on that Zeppelin. record got them some bad reviews, even from some of the writers who had been writing brilliant things about them for the past few, pre- few previous years. What didn't people like about Houses of the Holy? How can you not like it? It's a fantastic album, and it's so easy. Seriously, throw it on vinyl, throw it on a turntable, and listen to it on cans in the dark, and you'll see how good it is. It's the first Zeppelin record that I want, went and bought the day it came out, and I went home and I listened to it about four or five times. And at the end of that, I knew it was brilliant, but there were things that, that didn't ring true to what I'd grown accustomed to hearing from Led Zeppelin. Let's just mm. say that. But again, they go on tour. Everything's it's just making money hand over fish, playing oh, yeah. big places. Next on the hit parade came the sessions that would lead to what became physical graffiti. It was a difficult time for Led Zeppelin. Okay, they just had five successful albums, toured all over the world. They'd set up shop at Headley Grange. If you find a place that you really like to record in, you should use it. Mm-hmm. And they had the, 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 the truck outside ready to go. And uh, Jonesy shows up and basically says that he's he's quitting. Or he's thinking of quitting. He's done. Um, Was he just tired from the life? Just I think, the, yeah. the craziness, the touring, and the recording. And you got to realize he came like Paige did from the relatively normal lifestyle of being a studio musician, where you're always, you know, hustling from home to the studio and back to the bar and off to the house and back to the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here he was traveling all over the world, and he made a, a comment which has become part of Zeppelin lore, but it was kind of meant as a half joke that, you know, they were asking him, so what are you going to do if you're just going to take off? What are you going to do? What are you going to quit? What are you going to do? And he says, oh, there's an ad for uh, an organist at Winchester Cathedral. I think I'll apply. Maybe they'll have me. And and then it morphed into a story. He was going to be the choir master at Winchester Cathedral. Wow. But it was basically that he was tired. Grant told him, take a year off. If that's what you need to do, clear your head and see where we're at. And they could do that, I think, you know, at that point. So that was like November 73. And they had written these songs that later became known as the Big Eight. So they were going into Headley Grange to lay down these songs and figure out what was going to be the next album. Well, they had just signed Bad Company, this new group, to Swan Song, their label. And uh, basically, they rushed them in to Headley Grange to set up and recorded that amazing first Bad Company record while Zeppelin was sorting itself out. Whoa. When they resumed in 74, they got down to it and recorded those songs, but they found out it was too much for one album and not enough for two. You know, you had long songs like In My Time of Dying, Mm -hmm. Kashmir's a longer song, so things like that. So they went back and they looked at what were the outtakes, mostly from um, House of the Holy and from Zeppelin IV, but some other stuff too. And uh, they put it all together, they figured it out, and again with a very unique album cover concept. Oh, yeah. Um, they came up with physical graffiti, and that fueled the next round of touring and fun and games. The legendary 1975 touring? Oh, yes. Think about it. Zeppelin and the Stones were destroying America in 1975. Every oh. night one of them was setting it up and setting it off. Oh, my God. Throughout that most of that year. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Then the challenges that faced Led Zeppelin really started to kick in. Uh, and the fans and some of the press started talking about the deal with the devil and all that kind of yeah, and the weird shit started happening. 
Well, the first one was bad. It really was. Uh, Robert Plant and his wife were in a serious car accident in Greece on the island of Rhodes. Um, Plant got banged up pretty bad. She was badly injured, too. Uh, They say uh, it took a blood transfusion to save her life. Yeah, that's what they said. And Plant couldn't walk for a while. In fact, he was still in the wheelchair when they went to Musicland Studios to make the record that would become Presence. And did a lot of his singing from uh, in those sessions from the, the wheelchair. Wow. It just blew my mind. That's mm. how bad it was. So they go through that. We talked about uh, presence a little bit. Nobody, uh, including uh, the Rolling Stones, could believe it that when they showed up to make what would become Black and Blue, that not only was Zeppelin done, the page had left the studio, all was all cleaned up and ready for them and everything, uh, but it involved marathon overdub sessions that were legendary, even though the magic was just poor out of them and uh some of those tracks are some of the fans most favorite yeah they said i've I've read through multiple sources that jimmy page didn't sleep very often and you were lucky if you if you got him on five or six hours of sleep he was amazing like just an amazing person yeah uh, lisa robinson in her book talked a little bit about how page never slept and i'm sure some of it had to do with the drug use but some of it had a lot of it had to do with his brain and his creativity Well, by 1977, they had put out presents. They were on the road. They were on top of the world, not the uh, momentary lapse of reason from John Paul Jones aside. They had the accident, and they recovered from that. And then while Robert was on tour with the band in 1977, uh, his son Carrick uh, was a pretty small guy. I think he was five. Died from a stomach virus in the middle of the tour, and that put the brakes on the tour. Yeah. You know, they they weren't going to be able to continue. Nope. And that's what we were talking about. He wrote All My Love for his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people sing it to a lover, mm-hmm. but that's what he was singing about was the love of his son, Eric. Mm-hmm. And he's, I've seen him interviewed talking about it. And even now, uh, in his later years, talking about his son, I heard him one say, he'd be 45 now, you know, and it's like you can see it in, yeah. through the eyes of a parent. And as a parent, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. They're so precious to us. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, and I think Every part moment. Part of him was broken from that more than the injuries, than from the accident. Oh, absolutely. That's his son. You just, you know, and I've seen the way uh, friends and I see the way that other famous people deal when, they, when they've when they lost a child. Oh. And uh, I never saw it really as, a, as maybe it's because I was a kid and I wasn't plugged into all that. But in the interviews I've seen with Plant where he talks about it, you know, as a dad, your heart just goes out to him even now. For the loss so long oh, ago. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Oh, my God. But they do in Through the Outdoor, right? It's a great album, too, by yeah, the way. It's, and it's, again, it showed another aspect of their musicality. And yeah. the cover was cool, too, because there were different ones. Yeah. You had the paper bag. In, in the, yeah, you didn't know which one you were going to get. Yeah. And there, were the, there was the same sh- scene shot from all different angles. Nobody had done that before. I remember that was one I got for my bar mitzvah when it came out. And to me, that album holds dearest to my heart because of the fact that it, my brother gave it to me when I was like 12, 13 years old for right before my bar mitzvah. Cool. So, and those things the evening, never leave you. And in the evening is still one of my favorite songs. And every once in a while, I'll get a wild hair and be like, I'm not playing the song that's scheduled and pop in in the evening. Now, I don't know if it was because of all the tumultuous things that have happened and the challenges they'd faced. 
But they they changed it up, and they instead of doing it in, either at Headley Grange or in L.A. or or uh, studios in London and New York, uh, they went to Polar Studios in Stockholm. I think it was a big change because of all the pain and the suffering. Yeah, I think they, they just needed been. to change it up. Yep, uh, and and it got mixed reactions again after physical graffiti and presence. They 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 started to win even some of the critics over, but they got panned a little bit on it, and it was because it, it was experimental, and it also showed. Uh, more of John Paul Jones's hand in things with the mm-hmm. with the arrangements, uh, his his ability to arrange strings, his keyboard work was more highlighted. They felt like they were able to do just about anything and get away with it. And they I could. don't mean it that in a in a kind of a negative way, but they like we're going to try this. We're going to go to a different studio. We're going to make this different kind of record, and we're going to see how it goes. We're still led fucking Zeppelin, you know. And it's still rock and roll. So. They they go and they play at Nebworth, yeah. Legendary shows. They play two mm. nights. What they say, over a hundred thousand people each night. Yep. They do a little low key European tour. We're getting back to the the, the stripped down Led mm-hmm. Zeppelin sound, even while having this orchestrally enhanced record, right? Yeah. But in the middle of this, all this stretch, uh, bottom begins to show signs of something not being right. The alcoholism taking its toll. Collapsed on stage. Alcohol alone can take its toll. And he was taking something else. Yeah. Um, and he, he wasn't a, a drug guy, but he was taking something else. And it combined with the alcohol... Uh, got to be too much. Did he have chronic pain or anything like that? Because he hit the drums so fucking hard. I don't Ray. know about Man, that. Man, that dude banged the shit out of the. I drums. don't know what it is. I know that. I know that uh, alcoholism, especially severe, can be debilitating the way any drug habit can. Oh, it's, easily. It's a drug. One of their guys picked him up on September twenty fourth to go to rehearsals. Um, on the way, he stopped for breakfast, which was four. Quadruple vodkas. That's what? like sixteen. That's like sixteen shots. Sixteen shots of vodka with a ham roll sandwich, and uh, continued to drink after arriving at the studio. And the band went back to Paige's house. Bonham was asleep in the chair, and when they found him the next day, he had died of asphyxiation. There's only so much alcohol you can drink mm-hmm. until you're going to vomit, killing yourself in your sleep. If you're that drunk yeah. that you can't roll over or stop it, you're going to you can die. It happened to Hendrix. Mm-hmm. His was a combination of uh, uh, alcohol and barbiturates. Yeah, barbs. They said he was on something, uh, Motivol, which I don't even know what the hell that would be in today's medical terms, but it was because of his anxiety. It's hard to believe that a guy like Bonzo could have anxiety. I know. That's it. They couldn't replace him. No. He was could. the second and, and, most talented and, and guy in the band. Th- there have been multiple attempts to talk Plan into it. Uh, I'm they, not saying that Jimmy's been hard mm-hmm. on him, but other people, the money people... Yeah. They People did audition who, drummers, according to Lisa Robinson. There was nothing that, yeah, and there was they, nothing. They just didn't. It, they, I I think Plant, you know, they were mates from the from the beginning of the whole thing before the before they met Page and yeah. Jones, and it was done for him. Took him a while to do a solo career, which obviously sounded, if you remember, very different than Led oh, Zeppelin. Oh, completely different. Um, he did that on purpose. There was a Honey Drippers thing, and there was, a, you know, a, a Jimmy did the, the firm and yeah. did soundtracks and did a lot of did session the stuff work. with the Black Crows. Yeah, which and then was he really did the nice. tour with the Black Crows and all that. And all through it, there was always the conversation 
Um, it was similar to a conversation that was had all through the 70s about a Beatles reunion. It never felt right. There was that project we talked about. There was the XYZ, the XYS and Zeppelin mm-hmm. guys that were going to do a project that never got finished. But Plant's whole thing was when he started doing it was it's too soon. It was like a year and a half, two years after, and it was still too soon for him. His grieving for his his very dear mate took a yeah. long time, you know. When they finally agreed to do something um, at the O2 Arena, mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, to honor Amit, who was their mentor. It was obviously captured very well. It was a big-selling DVD and album. But in the last dozen years, at least a half dozen attempts have been made to try to coax them into something. Limited tour for big, big, big money. Yeah. It's not about the money. They don't They've care. got it. They have it all. They've got it. Paige is happy with his life. Plant likes playing with the sensational space shifters. Yeah. JPJ does what JPJ does. He Go wants on. to do like them crooked vultures and stuff like that. Great record. I have it. I, was oh, just I listening love to it. The other day, the one person that ends up out there on a regular basis promoting the Zeppelin legacy is son of Bonzo, Jason Bonham, really. Yeah, but he recently had to sign over the legalities to the Led Zeppelin experience back to the Led Zeppelin company. So yes. that means there's something going down. We just don't know what it is. Conjecture at the time was indicating that people thought there was going to be some kind of a Zeppelin app or something like that that would mm-hmm. be the Led, that they would need the name Led Zeppelin experience for. Mm-hmm. And that made sense to me. And he was, he understood without a, any, even a moment's hesitation or a fight over anything. Uh, because he knows that this is his family mm-hmm. and that if dad were alive, he'd kick his ass for not saying no. Absolutely. But, so they did it the right way. And he continues to do the Led Zeppelin uh, evening, yeah. as he calls it. And, and it goes out there and, and, he, and he does his father proud, I'm sure, every every day. Yes, he does. And I just wish that uh, they could have stopped Bonzo because this band could be still doing um, Could you imagine what they were meant to do? If Could you, you think imagine? about it, if you think about it, when you boil it all down, they're one of the most enduring bands of all time, retaining their stature as the greatest of their era, even being stopped in mid-flight. It's amazing. Yeah, they're, they 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 and they stopped abruptly at the top. Yeah, unexpectedly. Yeah, abruptly completely unexpectedly abruptly at the top. Hey, you know what we have to do? What do we have to do? Before we say goodbye, we have to dig into the Gmail bag. Oh, yeah? We haven't done that in a while. Let's no, I in. know. And why are you not Gmailing us at theimbalancedhistory at gmail.com? Please email us. Well, I got a note here. It says, uh, subject, Joni, 60 Singers episode. It says, Yo, Coob, I just got done listening to your podcast of top five of the 60s. Beth, I guess that's his wife. Yeah. Went nuts when you didn't have Joni Mitchell on the girl's side, but you redeemed yourself with Marvin Gaye at number one. If Marvin wasn't there, she was going to suggest you two put down the crack pipe. <laughs> Signed, Mark Hughes. Oh, it's Mark Hughes, my buddy. Uh, we nice. play golf together. A great guy. Nice. He loves the podcast. Thank you, Beth Thank you. and Mark. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we redeemed ourselves a little bit on the uh, Women in Rock and Roll Foundation episode. Mm. And if we still are not redeemed, we guarantee when we do the follow-up to that episode that you uh, shall be happy. When we talk about women in the 70s, yes, definitely. Here's a podcast update for you, my friend. What? Well, remember we were talking about the mamas and the papas, and you couldn't remember the other name of the other papa? Yeah. It's Denny Doherty. Denny Doherty. Thank you. Write it down. I'm writing it down. I just wanted you to know. I have to write that down because I felt foolish. Also, 
our crack pipe team of researchers. Yeah. They don't put down the crack pipe. Yeah, uh, they pipe. have been out checking and uh, trying to find the location of Arts Cafe on Ridge Avenue in Philadelphia, where Bessie Smith was uh, yeah. working when it was a speakeasy. And so far, nothing on Google about Arts Cafe on Ridge Avenue in Philadelphia. It was a speakeasy, and Bessie Smith was found working there. If anyone in the audience knows anything about uh, where Arts Cafe was, because I don't, I'm, it would have shown up if it was. That would be great. We would love to know. Please tell us what building it's in. We'll go explore. Yes, we will. So just totally. send that to uh, imbalancehistory at gmail.com. That's our Gmail address, and that's what's in the Gmail bag this week, G. G. Yeah, yes. Now, you can also follow us on Facebook, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You can follow Ray Coob Radio on Twitter or Marcus and Darkus on Facebook or yeah, on Twitter not? as well. Sure, why not? Why I mean, not? I that, mean, that we, we advertise on our personal Twitter accounts, and soon we will have the Imbalanced History Twitter account Twitter. up. We're just not there yet. Well, we're working on it. We're baby working steps. on it. We yeah. always talk about baby steps. And we're then we're going to clean up our website. And I have a few things going up that actually, by the time this is recorded, should be up on the website as well. A couple you know what interviews I love? And podcasts. You know what I love about this episode? What? We can sit here at episode thirteen and tell you what episode fourteen is going to be all about. Oh yeah, we don't do that very much. No, we don't. Episode fourteen, which will be out before you know it. Uh, is going to be a sit-down and chat in-studio visit with Kenny Aronson, uh, one of the truly great bass players in rock and roll history. Seriously. And the man has stories. He has amazing experiences. He's done so fucking much. Oh, my God. You're not going to believe how much. So we'll be talking with Kenny Aronson uh, next time we yeah. get together here on the Internet. And just so you know, a couple of names, Leslie uh, West. Yeah. George Harrison. Oh, yeah. Um, Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones. So we got your interest, Rick Derringer. Brother Jack. Louie. Oh, my goodness. Marky Ramon. It's going to be good. Oh, juicy. All right, my friend. Time to wrap it up. Pack up the plantation and head back to where we both go when we're not doing this podcast thingy. It is a production of Dark Doc Media. I'm the Doc, Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time for episode 14 with Kenny Aronson on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.